Well, good morning. Good to see each of you. If you take your scriptures, open with me to 1 Peter. Well, Election Day is 16 days away. On Tuesday, November 8th, our country will elect its next president. This particular election has revealed a lot about character, belief systems, and the moral fabric of our nation, not just in the candidates, but in our country as a whole. I mean, if you're watching and you're listening and you're tracking, uh, we have said a lot about ourselves as a country through this particular election. If you try to get a pulse on the nation, it seems that hope is fading and fear, cynicism, and disillusionment are rising. This morning, I'll ask you that question. As we, as we are moving towards this, I'll ask you a simple question, but maybe not simple to answer. Where is your hope? And I'm not looking for some quasi-religious Pinterest quote. When everything is pulled back and stripped away at the very foundation of who you are, what are you hoping in this morning? What is your Messiah? What is your deliverer? What is it that you want to rescue you? Peter writes this in this first letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for that hope that is in you. Can you answer As Peter says, be ready for this. Perhaps your hope is a circumstance. What I've sensed from some people is that through this election process, we have come to fear most what we have grown to love most. And as a nation, we have knitted together the American dream and a red, white, and blue Christianity. And what we fear most is losing the comfort and prosperity that we have grown to love the most in many cases. What is it you're hoping in? Because if your hope is a circumstance, then you cannot rejoice in every circumstance because your hope is one of those. So if if your hope is a circumstance and circumstances change and fluctuate, then you're not going to have this hope that Peter's going to talk about in this first chapter. There is a phrase in our text this morning that will describe something no president or country or situation or financial plan can offer you. I want you to notice this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a what? What what are the next two words? Living hope. What is your hope this morning? Peter connects the new birth with hope. And I think we're going to find out why he does that. There's a man who wrote a book named Man's Search for Meaning. His name is Victor Emil Frankel. He's an Australian neurologist and psychiatrist as well as a Holocaust survivor. He actually survived Auschwitz. And he noted while he was in there as a counselor, as a scientist, 
as a psychiatrist, he noted how different people responded to intense suffering, to incredible hardship. He said basically it comes down to four different ways. He said the first is people became brutal. Even kind people became brutal. That was their coping mechanism. The kind prisoners turned extremely brutal towards the other prisoners. He said, secondly, a lot of people just give up. He writes, quote, many prisoners just lose all hope. And with all hope, they lose spiritual hold. Usually this happened quite suddenly. And we all feared this in our friends. It just happened one morning when they refused to get up, refused to get dressed or refused to eat. No prompting, no amount of threat could deliver them from shriveling up. Third, he says a lot of people held on by hoping in former hopes. He says, he writes, many held on through the hope that if they stayed alive long enough, their health, family, professional achievements, fortune, and position in society would be restored. But even after liberation, these people went back to a world that had changed. And many became cynical and disillusioned and plunged into deep depression because what they had hoped in was a circumstance He says, finally, only a few of the prisoners kept their full inner liberty and obtained an inner strength that raised them above their outward fate. This is an unbelieving man who's noticing four common responses to suffering. And he does trace it back to something at the foundation of a person's soul, and it's what they hope in. Victor wrote, life in a concentration camp tears open the human soul and exposes its depth and its foundations. Other people, other prisoners would come to him and seek counsel. They found out who he was and his training and his standing, and they would come and ask how they could get through this. And he would say to them, quote, Life only has meaning if we have a hope and a meaning that suffering and even death cannot destroy. So I'm going to ask you again this morning, where is your hope? What are you hoping in right now? If you could just write it out. If you can't write it out, you haven't clarified it. If you could just write it in one sentence. What is your hope this morning? Peter acknowledges some very real circumstances for the recipients of this letter. Matter of fact, he's going to comment and use certain words that are going to allow these themes to kind of come to the surface. In this short letter, he's going to use the term suffering 20 times. This, this theme occurs more in 1 Peter than any other New Testament book. So if that's where you find yourself today, then 1 Peter is a timely letter for you. He uses the word slander. He uses five different words for slander. Do you know that sometimes our suffering takes on the form of Other people slander to us. And he uses five different words to describe that particular kind of suffering in 1 Peter. Sixteen times he uses the word glory. He's actually going to take us from this suffering and this slander, and he's going to orient our perspective forward. This is a future orientation. He's going to use this term glory 16 different times. Holiness nine times. Submission to authority seven times. Joy six times. Hope five times. The revelation of Christ, His second coming four times. 
And the primary way in which he is going to talk about how we interact with each other here is the term love. Peter ends his letter. I want you to go to the last chapter, 1 Peter chapter 5. And just so you're not disappointed, this is your only slide this morning. Okay. And we get this, we get this theme from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. This is the true grace of God. Okay, and he's going to call for a response. Stand firm in it. So this morning, perhaps, you feel like you're losing traction or you're slipping towards complacency or you're numb by all the evil in the world or you are hopeless or you're drowning under the world's expectations and value system and busyness or you're living in fear of a growing hostile secular culture. First Peter would say this, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, Peter's letter, go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, is going to follow the common form of a early, they call them Hellenistic letters. Okay, I received a letter on Friday. Okay, we have our own form of a letter. And one of my children noted that it was probably a little more important just based upon kind of the stock and the design. And so they you know, set it there in the middle. And I opened it up, and like any letter inside, okay, so it's addressed to me. Like any letter, it's going to identify the sender. It's going to give me a greeting. It's going to state a purpose. There's going to be the body, an explanation, and there's a very clear appeal to me. And then in the last paragraph, there is a call for response. And unlike Hellenistic letters, American letters end with the person writing the letter, Whereas in these letters, like you'll see in 1 Peter, it starts by identifying the author. Okay, so this is a letter. We still get these. This is not an uncommon thing. This is part of what God is doing right now in our life as we move towards this election. And we have 1 Peter written thousands of years ago, but applicable today. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's the author and the recipients. Okay, you just got this letter. Okay, and, and the idea is that this letter was going to be delivered to these churches in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey, churches who were suffering. First Peter chapter 1, Peter, there's the author, an apostle of Jesus Christ, used in a technical sense that Peter has been designated by Jesus Christ to be an authoritative messenger and interpreter of the gospel. By the way, even after he had failed miserably, even after he had blatantly and openly and obnoxiously rejected Jesus Christ. Jesus calls him back, gives him an opportunity to restore himself. Three positive affirmations of love for the three blatant denials. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Well, here he is. He's feeding us. And he's writing a letter to these churches who are suffering. The author knows what it feels like to fail. And he's writing with this compassion. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those, here's your recipients, who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
according to. Okay, this is going to further describe these recipients. You are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's the introduction. Often called a salutation and a greeting. Quickly, because an entire sermon uh, could just unfold the theology in this greeting. This isn't typically how we greet in our letters today. But I want you to notice several things in this. Peter refers to them as elect. Elect exiles. And he does not use the words elect and foreknowledge, you'll notice that word is there too, to throw us into a crisis of faith or to incite intense theological debate. Who's he writing to? Dispersed people living in this broadened Roman Empire, people who were foreigners. These aren't, these aren't your common long-term residents here. They're foreigners. And because of their relationship with the Father, they're even more foreign. And he's writing this letter to comfort them. He's using the word elect and foreknowledge to give comfort to people who are facing extreme difficulty. These terms are used to provide comfort for you. Comfort for God's people. Wayne Grudem defines this term used 22 times in the New Testament as always referring to persons chosen by God from a group of others who are not chosen. That's just what the word means. Chosen for inclusion among God's people as recipients of great privilege and blessing. And that is exactly what Peter is going to put forward as their inheritance. Here you have these people. They're foreigners. But they're not foreign to God. They're His children. He's purposely elected them according to His foreknowledge. The description exiles foreigners describes more than just believers' transitory life on earth, because that's true of all people, isn't it? Your life is a vapor. It appears for a little time and vanishes away. It's primarily a definition or a description of their relationship between the Christian and unbelieving society. You're exiles. You're foreigners. You're sojourners. You're wanderers. You're not really at home. Right? You have a citizenship, but you don't. I have two children that were born in Kenya, East Africa. They have a Kenyan birth certificate. They used to offer dual citizenship. They no longer offer that, so at a particular age, you have to choose where you want your citizenship. So even though I have two children that have a Kenyan birth certificate, in order to get into Kenya, they would still need a visa, even though they were born there. Right? So in one sense, that's their home. And in another sense, they're foreigners. And this is what Peter is trying to convey to these people. These these are Christians living in a Roman Empire, but they're being persecuted because of their relationship to a father. Their citizenship in heaven is creating difficulty with their temporary earthly citizenship. And so he encourages them. 
Look at verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's the attribute that is primarily on Peter's mind when he goes to encourage these people. God is personally active. God took the initiative in saving you. This is a personal, loving, fatherly knowledge according to His foreknowledge. Look in the next part. In the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit sets these believers apart. So the Father, in His fatherly love and care and knowledge, initiates this salvation. The Holy Spirit sets them apart. And He does so through preaching, but He also does so with the gift of conviction. Let me read to you 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul writes, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Same, same thought that Peter uses. Because our Gospel came to you not only in word... Right? Preaching, that's a necessary part. The Holy Spirit uses that. But our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And it was through those things that God chose you. He goes on to say, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. So this consecrating work of the Holy Spirit, this setting aside of people has a specific goal. And it is the setting apart through a sacrifice. That's what sprinkling with blood, that's the image it is intended to convey. It was a reminder to the people in the Old Testament that something suffered and something died. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Salvation is only through a sacrifice. And then he says this, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. I mean, he just throws out these incredible, these intense, these deep theological ideas. And then he says, And may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I mean, you should be overwhelmed by the grace of God because you have experienced His undeserved favor. Now that moves us into the first main section. We're going to just fly right into this. Look at verse 3. We're going to, we're going to divide the rest of this initial part up into two sections. Here's the first part. Salvation initiated by God's mercy and preserved by God's power. And then, secondly, salvation proven through testing and trial. Okay, this is exactly what Peter's going to move into. Look at verse 3. A prayer, a praise, look at what he says. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. First of all, first thing I want you to notice, God's great mercy. Look at verse 3. It is according to His great mercy. That means this. There is not a single person in this room this morning or in this world who deserves forgiveness. Salvation is according to God's mercy. We do not come to God with a list of our righteousness and expect Him to owe us something 
We come based upon His mercy through the provision of His Son. And we all come the same way. It's not like this idea of being born again in a living hope is for these poor people who sort of need a psychological reset to their life and there's some other kind of gospel for cultured, wealthy people. Peter brings us all to the same point. Jesus is the door. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one goes to the Father except through Him. And it is all initiated by God's mercy. Undeserved favor. Or you could say something within Him that pitied us. Let me give you an example. So about this time of year, uh, we'll have young athletes knock on our door and they are selling, you probably already know, right, these coupon booklets where for $10, you can get a coupon book worth up to $100. And if I agree to buy one coupon booklet and I hand him $10, have I shown him mercy? No, no mercy has been shown. Right? Now, I've, I've kept my responsibility. He said this is the cost. I paid it. Now, if, if I don't want a coupon booklet, and typically I do not want a coupon booklet, because there's like two places in there I'll use, and there's 35 places where I do not need a pedicure. So I'll say no to the coupon booklet, but what if, I mean, it's 1230, this guy looks hungry, and something within me moves, and I say, hey, I don't, I love what you're doing, hope your team does well this year, here's $10, go get yourself something from Chick-fil-A. Has mercy been shown? Yes, Why? Because he didn't deserve that $10. All he's doing is going around, right, and selling coupon booklets. But now something within me moves and gives him something that he did not deserve. Do you know that's what God does to us? That's his posture towards us in salvation. You didn't earn it. You didn't sell enough coupon booklets to gain his favor. No, he had to pity us. And therefore, He initiates this salvation. What does that look like? Look at the next phrase. According to His great mercy, He has caused us, very clear language, to be born again. The mysterious union of your soul and Christ's life gives you new life and brings hope. Now, Paul said it this way. I, just wanna, I want you to hear Paul as you just heard what Peter said, Paul says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So somehow you thought you've just always been a Christian because you came into this sort of you know, American Baptist home and you've just always believed. Paul's going to reject that idea. He says, like the rest of mankind, we were by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, well, what does that mean? Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus talks about being born again. This is the same thing Jesus told Nicodemus, a wealthy, religious, respectable man in John chapter 3. 
Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. This is the same term that Peter is using. And he causes us to be born again. Look at the next phrase. To a living hope. Hope is not wishful thinking. Right? Some of you are hoping for a certain outcome. To Monday night's game, to the election. Okay. But there is something else. That, that's hope in a secular sense. But there is a hope. Biblical hope is confident expectation. It's not, I really hope this happens. It is a confident expectation that you place your hope in. So, so here's the beautiful part. Your thoughts may condemn you. Your feelings may be all over the place, but your hope is fixed in an objective sacrifice, God's Son. New birth and living hope rest on, look at the next phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Death had to be conquered. A sacrifice had to be paid. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. So that has to be dealt with. So as unbelievers, we were spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, 1 to 2 states, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He goes on to say, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, his cross work. Now look at the next phrase. To an, to an inheritance. What is the inheritance? He's caused you to be born again. To a living hope. And now he talks about this inheritance. Well, it's eternal life, joy, peace, perfection, the presence of God, the close friendship of Christ, the unhindered presence of the Holy Spirit, God's love shown to us, the absence of suffering, the absence of sin. And listen to what he, look at what he says in verse 4 about this inheritance. It's imperishable, which means it won't decay or spoil. It's undefiled. It's unstained with evil. It's unpolluted. It is unfading. It doesn't wither or lose quality. And then he says it's kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now I want you to, I want you to hear this. Some of us struggle with this. Our gracious Father, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and present everywhere has guarded your inheritance. But he also has guarded you. If you're his child, this is the encouragement. Elect exiles. God has initiated it. He has caused you to be born again. Okay? And he keeps this untouched for you. And he keeps you even though that doesn't mean he keeps you untouched by suffering. Because that's what First Peter is going to teach us. That these things can be ours, that there can be a living hope amidst suffering. Look at the next, look at verse 6. This is really the second portion here. Salvation tested and proven by various trials. Verse 6, in this you rejoice. That's the present tense. I'll get a little technical here. In this 
present situation that Peter is writing to them, in this present situation where we are hearing Peter's words to us again in 2016, in this you rejoice. This is is a reality. We are presently rejoicing. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That's also a present tense. You are rejoicing, though you are grieving right now. Can you relate with that experience? Or is your rejoicing connected to the total absence of suffering and difficulty? And it's either you're suffering and everybody knows about it, or you're on top of the world. And what Peter's going to do is he's going to bring joy and suffering back together into, if you would, a holistic relationship. He's going to allow both to exist. And this is going to be very important for us as a church because when we realize that this salvation is by God's mercy, when we realize that I didn't somehow just earn God's favor a little bit more than the person I'm sitting near, we're going to interact with each other differently. And Sunday morning won't be a time where we're simply trying to cover up our own brokenness. Because you don't have to hide before God. Adam and Eve ran from the one they needed the most. We don't have to come in here and play religion. We don't have to hold it all together for 90 minutes and then go home and be broken for the next six days. Because if you look at the life of Christ, if you look at the mercy of God, if you look at His loving kindness towards you, He welcomes you in your brokenness. And he understands that even believers need to be exhorted, they need to be rebuked, and they need to be encouraged that you have a living hope inside of you. God has done this. He says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That word for grieved is the same word that Jesus uses when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane This isn't a slight difficulty. Jesus said this, My heart is sorrowful, that's the word, even unto death. The Son of God is being crushed. And He uses the very word Peter says to these believers, even though right now you're grieving and it feels like a crushing. You have a living hope inside of you. Then there's this So, what is Peter saying? You greatly rejoice, present tense. And you are crying out in pain and agony, present tense. He doesn't say, when you're rejoicing, there's an absence of agony, or when there's agony, there's an absence of rejoicing. He says both of these, for a true born-again believer, can exist at the same time. Look at verse 7. You're going to get the purpose statement, so that. Okay, why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith... And when you're in the crucible, what do people see? When you're crying, and I don't mean, I don't just mean tearing up. I mean crying to the point where mucus is coming out of your nose and your mouth. And you're being crushed. What do people see? 
But do people hear? I'm going to tell you what they're going to see. They're going to see your hope. They're going to see what you're really hoping in. And it is God's mercy to apply the fires of affliction to strip away everything else we've been trusting in. And I can tell you, in that process, you may not be rejoicing. But in the end, you will find a joy. You will finally taste a joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ that nothing in this world can compare to. Why is this happening? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Trouble is unavoidable. And I'm wondering, though, that for some of us, as, as, as American evangelical Christians, if our hope is in a circumstance, the absence of suffering, or financial stability, or everyone thinks my kids are good, I'm wondering if sometimes our hope isn't found in a circumstance and we try to avoid trouble, but trouble is unavoidable. Here's what you learn about trouble or difficulty. Verse 6, it's temporary. It's only for a little while. Verse 6, trouble causes an emotional response. You have been grieved. You are being grieved right now. You also learn that trouble has many faces. You are being grieved by various trials. There are troubles in the world. There are troubles in the church. And there are troubles in other people's lives. And there are troubles in your life. And there are troubles for you physically. And there are troubles for you in your mind. And there are troubles for you emotionally. And you are being afflicted by various troubles. But verse 7, trouble serves God's purpose so that your faith may be found to result in suffering, in something. And suffering results in praise. Now, a caution. Because, because typically for people that have, that have been raised and lived in a, a culture that is known for its pursuit of comfort... Here's how we respond when the hope in that particular circumstance is tested. We either respond in indifference or in anger. When God actually intends us to grieve, to be refined, and to be purged. The furnace is meant to produce joy in the right things. Because then Peter makes this statement, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. I mean, when, when the fire is applied to your life by the design of a merciful father, when that fire is applied, is the result, as people watch you suffer, that even though you've never seen Jesus, you love him. 
Even though you have not seen Him, you believe in Him. There is something unshakable about the living hope that is inside of you. Now, if we come down and you consider, how did Jesus handle the cross? Remember this term He used in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, If you were to talk to Him, and I'm not sure how they would have interacted at this point as He's moving towards the giving of His own life, He wasn't in the garden and the disciples ask him, how are you doing? He says, I'm just praising the Lord. Doing better than I deserve. Amen, brother, we're going to make it through. Now, you know what? He was real. The Son of God had sweat drops of blood. He was being crushed and he admitted that I am suffering even to the point of death. And Father, if it's your will, may this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Do you know the new birth in Christ drastically and almost completely changes the relationship between joy and sorrow in your life? They exist together, and it's often that the sorrow will produce in you the right kind of joy, inexpressible joy, rejoicing present tense. But if you make any finite object into your ultimate hope, you will be disappointed. And if you are his child, he will apply the fires of affliction. And as as the psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I have kept your word. So when suffering begins to tear open your soul and lay bare your foundation... What's there? What's at the core of who you are? What are you hoping in? Look at verse 13. We'll end with just glancing at this verse. This will be next week. So Peter says, I mean, this new birth initiated by a merciful Father through the work of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, and there's an inheritance in it, and it's untouched, and you're really untouched in the Father's perspective. And And he just kind of unpacks this incredible new birth into a living hope. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So how do you get that living hope? Well, you have to believe the gospel. And the gospel is not, if I try really hard, maybe God will accept me. That's not the gospel. That's religion. The gospel is what Jesus Christ has done for you. And because of that, something is kept for me. I'm guaranteed of getting it. Nothing, no one, not even myself, can squander or compromise that inheritance that God has kept. There is no condemnation for me. I am completely accepted by God. I am more loved by God than I can possibly imagine. I am holy and beautiful in His sight because Jesus is holy and beautiful in His sight. And someday I'm going to experience that in its fullness. And even now, that truth, that living hope, changes the foundation of my life today. Those people who by faith have believed and trusted, who have this confident expectation, they are called born again Believers, new birth into a living hope.